Hi there, this is Steve, but this isn't the beginning of the show. Before we begin, I invite you to check out my free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence. If you're an entrepreneur, business owner, or leader with financial responsibility in your company, you'll definitely not want to miss this one. I'll cover how a winning strategy combined with operational excellence drives higher cash flow and firm value. You can watch it for free at cultbar.com. I'll also link it in the show notes below. I hope you enjoy it. You're listening to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast, a podcast for entrepreneurs, business leaders, and professionals who want to elevate their game and reach new levels of abundance and success. I'm Steve Coffrin, the founder of Coltvar, and I've spent my entire career growing and turning around companies, and together we'll explore the latest happenings in the world of strategy and finance. Let's do this. Before we begin, just remember that this podcast is for educational purposes and the information shared herein should not be construed as legal, tax, or investment advice. Check out our terms and conditions in the show notes to learn more. Now on to the show. Vinay, welcome to the Strategic Financial Leadership Podcast. I'm excited to have you on. It's been a while um, since we met at the MIT course um, back in 2019, so I'm excited to reconnect and hear some of your insights and catch up on what you're doing in life. Likewise, Steve. Uh, great to great to connect. Thanks for having me, and yeah. uh, I look forward to this. Yeah, absolutely. So it, it's interesting because um, just to provide the listeners with a little bit of context, I did this uh, CFO Accelerator course um, is at MIT, and Vinay was one of the the visiting professors, and um, he re- his message really captivated me. And it's interesting. There's one thing that you said that really stuck with me and you, you probably don't even remember this, but you know, there's one point in your lecture where you're, you're talking and you said, you need to be focused on developing the skills and the capabilities that you'll need in the next 10 years, not necessarily what you need now. And, and that really like hit home. And I was like, wow, you know, there's a lot of developments happening in the world of technology and data analytics and these other things that I really need to sharpen myself up on because just focusing on like the, the latest regulations and compliance, sure, that stuff's important, but you could get so lost in that stuff that you miss the future. Absolutely. Um, you know, I think we all tend to, to underestimate how much change can happen in the long term and overestimate it in the short term. Obviously, what's urgent gets more attention than what's important sometimes. And especially post-pandemic, um, a lot of this innovation and change has accelerated. So I think learning and thinking about learning new skills, I think is critical for a, for a fulfilling career more than anything else. Absolutely. I agree. And, and so thank you for that, that advice, because that's really shaped, you know, what I've been focusing on over the last few years. And, but I, be, before we dive into like the present, cause you have a lot of interesting things going on right now. I want to understand kind of your journey um, into like this space because you're this technology slash financial um, person. Like, where did that even stem from? When you were a kid, were you interested in business and technology and, and finance, or were you? Did you just happen to kind of fall into this area of expertise? So I'll take you all the way back, Steve. I think my first job um, was when I was 15. I somehow convinced my parents to send me to a computer coding class which, you know, I grew up in India, so this was really rare at that time in the, in the 90s. So I learned DBase, Lotus. Uh, you, you, some of your listeners might know about these old school uh, softwares. And then my first job was tutoring kids uh, where we lived on these things. So 
it's been it's been accidental but early my first uh, degree was engineering which was very te- technical uh, i went to indian institute of technology and then switched from there and did a phd in finance so by the time i graduated from nyu and started teaching at wharton you know the two the two skill sets essentially was finance and technology uh with the with the coding aspects embedded in it and so very naturally most of the things that have done since then have combined these two things including for example running a quant hedge fund it was as much uh, a fintech business as a fund and then of course uh, starting starting a few other fintech firms so the journey just i think it's interesting when you look back at it definitely the two dots that i see uh, connected are finance and technology well and i think i think that's very interesting because you know similarly you know i so when i, I was doing my undergrad uh, studies, you know, I was going for marketing and finance. And then at the very last minute, I was, I was literally like one or two classes away from getting a marketing degree. I switched to accounting and finance. And when I did that, you know, I was just thinking, hey, I need to understand like what's in the financial statements in order to be at the level I want to be at in finance. So I did that. And I remember my family, they were thinking like, what the heck is Steve doing? You know, here he is, this entrepreneur, because I started my first business when I was 16. And now he's studying accounting. Like what the heck is, is going on here? But I think there's like this, this intersection kind of with you at technology and finance. Um, and with me, it's, it's strategy and finance. And obviously technology plays its part in that. But I think, you know, oftentimes if you just look at one of those disciplines, in isolation, right? You can you can run into some trouble, or you can you could be very myopic in your thinking, right? If you are just so finance driven, you may miss out on operations, or you may miss out on technology, or on strategy, or whatever it is. Um, what are your thoughts on that? I mean, completely. In fact, I think going back to some of the skills that you started this conversation with, I think one of the skills that you really need, and I think uh, will be increasingly valued rewarded is the ability to build bridges between areas that are segmented out you know whether it's finance and technology but connecting dots between two different topics i think is increasingly uh, going to be rewarded you know within each area there's so much work that's often done that doing something truly innovative within an area is not easy sometimes it's easier just to connect two areas and find interesting things in there So I'm a huge fan of interdisciplinary linkages. Yeah, and I and I absolutely agree with that. And I think that's really important. So let me let me go step back just for a second. Why did you decide to get a PhD in in finance and, and economics from NYU? It, was your goal to, you know, just deepen your your knowledge in that area or or did you know you wanted to teach and it was that your plan to just be a teacher or professor for the rest of your career? What what were your thoughts at that time? no it wasn't um while doing my undergrad in india i had done a course on um, part time on business administration so i had some familiarity with it um and my thesis in undergrad was on operations management it was an ai program to design chemical tanks because uh, i had chemical and operational engineering so my thesis one of the professors at nyu saw my thesis and invited me to go study there uh you know with fellowship and the the reason i went was because it was uh in new york city and with fellowship it was it wasn't really a very thoughtful decision on the on the topic that i picked 
Interesting. So how's the world of finance economics? How's that really shaped you and shaped your thinking? And what do you think is done well in this function? And what do you think needs to be improved in order for this function to be highly successful and in alignment with the future? In economics in general, to me, uh, it's fascinating. I found it fascinating. Unlike, you know, it's a social science. So so things are constantly evolving based on how people behave, how they come together, how they act. And often there are some fascinating second order implications of things. And that applies to finance, that applies to any field which is shaped by individual behavior and collective behavior, whether it's organizations or markets. So to me, I think overall, having a chance to get that training um, and and analyze problems with a very different lens was a great gift. And one of the things that I think um, you learn when you go through you know, a high quality, let's say, PhD academic program is you have to be creative. There are two ways to be creative, and you have to do typically both. One is you have to ask new questions. And I think that's where it all starts. You know, we, we are not trained generally in our traditional schooling system to ask great questions. We are we're trained to provide answers. And I think increasingly the ability to ask questions uh, is going to be more important. And the second is, I think, you have to answer things quite differently if the question has already been asked. And that's where you have to be creative, think out of the box. And those sorts of um, you know, real capabilities, I would say, is what I took away. And at least, you know, higher education, academia in the U.S., I think does a tremendous job of that, of instilling that creativity. No, and, and that's interesting. And, and I think that's so true. You know, I think there's so much power in asking questions. Do you think there's pressure at the top? Like if you're a, a C-level executive where you feel like, hey, I'm, I'm guiding the ship here. I should have all the answers. Is it vulnerable for them to ask questions? And do you think like that that's one hesitation of why people don't ask more questions is because is it makes them feel like in a vulnerable state, like they don't maybe they're not as qualified or they, they don't have the answer. So it, you know, it hurts them in some way. Do you think that's it? Or, or do you think it's something else that prevents people from asking questions? I think that's definitely, that's definitely a huge component of it. You know, when we sit in meetings often um, at, at our firm and Tiffin, I often start a meeting saying, what do we not know? As opposed to let's talk about what do we know? And I think it changes, it changes people's mindset around, talking about things that they have answers to versus talking about things where they have questions. Um, but I think there's definitely a reframing that is often needed in executive meetings to encourage that. And for everyone, whether it's a, a C-level executive or someone who reports to them, I think they both have their, both have their own reasons to, to not expose uh, questions that they don't have answers to. But I think organizations can really grow and learn very differently if they can create a culture to do that. Yeah, absolutely agree. So what type of things and trends do you see happening with um, the CFO role specifically? And how do you think things have shifted since uh, COVID-19? So the CFO role, as you know, Steve, the CFO role means very different things to different organizations. In the context of both your podcast and I know how you think, you know, let's answer that from a more strategic value-added uh, CFO, if you will. And post-COVID, I think the two biggest things that have changed, one is the need for speed. You have to move fast. Mm-hmm. You know, you can no longer sit there 
and update your uh, forecasts or decisions with a quarter lag because within a quarter we can have a world that is completely shut down or open sure, um, sure. and that i think is is creating both the intent and the need for rewiring systems across organizations and at least if not i think folks need to be thinking about how can this whole function run more real time so there is data that more people are using rolling forecasts for example you know that's mm-hmm. just another way of saying let's be more nimble and the the cost control also needs to be tighter of course maybe last year was a, perhaps was just a abnormal year but that was a huge aspect but i think even going forward the emphasis on innovation because of covid across firms digital um, enhancements of the organization will require investments very differently as well so cfos c level executives i think need to have a firm understanding not a technical understanding but a firm understanding of the what does digital mean what does technology mean how could it really change the business what is possible how should they invest into it should they buy should they build should they partner those sorts of questions are going to become a lot more important than they were you know 3 years ago sure so sure. so speed cost control and investing into innovation i would say are the three trends which i expect to continue not just go away because of what happened Yeah, and I agree. And I, I want to hear your thoughts on cost control because when it comes to me, like I, I think most people, whether you're in a, a CFO position or I've dealt with consultants, and they come in and they immediately they attack GNA, right? They come in and they try to cut overhead and they try to make um, these different cuts that actually. hurts the business in the long term. And I think like what I'm hearing you say and like what I believe in uh is that in a CFO position, you have to be able to build these bridges with other functions and really understand all the activities of the business. And some activities can be automated, can be digitized, can be eliminated, right? And that's when you start creating new operating models to to function from because, you know, if you keep doing the same exact thing and you just cut G&A, then nothing really has changed and then when the business comes back you find yourself stuck you know so i i've worked with people where they're like okay let's pull you know a, a list of salaries and then they'll they'll go through and say okay let's cut this cut that cut this and they're just cutting people but their structure doesn't change if that makes sense their operating model doesn't change so then when the work comes back or when they find that there's serious problems or cracks are emerging in the business then they just hire back and they they just stuck in the same operating model and nothing really changes as far as long-term cost structure and and cost control what are your thoughts on that couldn't agree more i think to me cost control is not about a myopic exercise you know which um, you're doing in the short term now there might be some good reasons to do that in occasional uh, circumstances but in general it's really about uh, how do you invest for a future business structure that is financially more efficient mm-hmm. you know that that might mean let's say strategically there's a goal of saying these are the revenues we want to meet and these are the multiples that will be applied on those revenues for valuation purposes how can we increase the multiples how can we increase the revenues how can we increase the margins in the future on a sustained basis that's when all of those gets reflected into what the business is worth anything that's being done for a quarter but then has to be reverted or cannot be sustained is not going to flow down into the eventual valuation or business success i think it's it's about being a bit more thinking of cost as a tool in your arsenal 
for value creation is how I think about this. Yeah. And I, and I think that's such a great point. And I remember, you know, back in 2019, when we were talking, you're sharing ideas about business model innovation and you're saying, you know, business model innovation is very, very important. And you gave the example of Robinhood, which, you know, we all know just went public um, just recently, but their whole model was to, instead of charging customers, you know, this transaction fee on every trade on the front end, they decided to capitalize on the back end. And it's just, it's little things like that, that organizations can do that can either change the business model, whether that's from a revenue growth perspective or from like a a cost capital efficiency perspective. A business model innovation, I think has created some amazing companies. So look, the tech innovation in a firm like Robinhood, we can debate, but it's, you know, clearly not as strong as many other highly innovative product innovation companies. And Robinhood is not an exception. I think when you combine the tech innovation with the business model innovation is when you create outsized outcomes for everyone. And there is so much fat in a supply chain between the consumer and the end, let's call it manufacturer, in most industries. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's why that's why I think marketplaces, for example, have done particularly well because they come between the manufacturers and the users and start changing experiences uh, and charge differently. So I think in some ways, there's lots of opportunity to create new businesses simply sometimes by saying, I'm willing to live with a lower margin. Um, And then you get enough volume and scale with a different model. The second aspect I think business model innovation often works out is because a lot of the current business models are just legacy models because of how things evolved. And often they're not aligned with the, with the consumer, with the end client, whoever that is, consumer or business. And changing that alignment has inevitably been the trend across all sectors and industries. You know, in, for example, in the financial advisory space where we do a lot of work, uh, financial advisors used to get paid commissions. And that obviously created all sorts of incentives for them to, to trade in and out of funds that mutual funds were selling to them. And the, their clients you know, paid the fees. Increasingly, it's now a fee-based model where most advisors simply charge you know, a basis point on the client assets and don't, don't charge for any product placement, et cetera. So that just made them more aligned with the end investor. So when you think of both alignment as well as just opportunities to, to uh, remove or reduce intermediary fees, there are, some, there are still several sectors where I think there are opportunities to innovate on the business model. Hey, real quick, I hope you're enjoying this episode. If you're an entrepreneur or business leader and you want to take your game to the next level or you want to avoid being crushed out there during these uncertain times, be sure to check out our free masterclass called The Surprising Path to Excellence by visiting cultivar.com or through our Boosting Your Financial IQ app. I'll link this in the show notes as well. I'm also offering some freebies, so be sure to check it out. Now back to the show. Absolutely. I agree. Well, which brings up a question for me because, so as a CFO of a a large company and um, technology reported up to me, and I remember meeting with our director of technology and um, we would go over, you know, budgets for the year and we'd, we'd build out our rolling forecast. And I remember he had a spreadsheet of 
all the different technologies that we had and it, you know, had our per user fee or annual fee or whatever. And it, you know, it's this pretty detailed cheap. And I remember just looking at all the software products that we used, right. For just operations, efficiency, project management, communication, storage, so on and so forth. And there's just a lot. So I'm sitting here thinking, okay, for me, with all the demands on my plate as a CFO, also trying to like bring in this digital strategy and the technology strategy and like incorporate the two, it could be overwhelming. So what advice do you have for CFOs out there that are thinking to themselves, look, I know I need to reinvent the business model and I probably need to take the lead on it. Maybe it doesn't fall all on them, but they may feel like this pressure to at least take charge in that area. Um, how do they keep up on all the new technology coming out and all the solutions and just, you know, all the products. And so they don't build this like clunky car, you know, it's just like all this random stuff on it, bells and whistles. I think one of the first things I often ask our team also is let's change the conversation from software to how does it, whose behavior is going to change if we do this successfully. And I think often, you know, things get lost in the, in the technical jargon of these things. So whether it's a tech project or a software, why does this exist? What does this enable us to do? And what happens if it doesn't exist? One aspect, which I think is a massive opportunity for business executives to contribute to the innovation is to truly, truly help the, the tech teams to understand, you know, what are the high impact business problems? There has been this tendency to use tech to automate, which was, call it an early phase of, of tech innovation. Increasingly, the real opportunities are showing up in uh, predictive capabilities that help you answer things that you couldn't before. You know, so it's not about just doing what you did before faster or in an automated fashion, but it's about enabling things you couldn't do before uh, in a meaningful way, such as you know, use AI to build a balance sheet or do forecast version one that you can then start off from. So these sorts of productivity tools are, are real opportunities, but the, the tech teams, the tech firms, they can't, they can't build it unless they know what to build. And I think this is where there's a significant opportunity for CFOs, for C-level executives to step back and think about the business problems and hand it often to the tech team to say, let's, let's solve this. And that communication I think is increasingly important. I absolutely agree. And, and, and that's a great way to frame it. So let's switch gears here and let's talk about um, your current company, Tiffin. So tell the audience, what is Tiffin? What's the, the business all about? And what are, you, what are you up to nowadays? Tiffin. So I started Tiffin two and a half years ago. Tiffin is a fintech platform that's focused on personalizing wealth management. The way we personalize wealth management is two main pillars. One is AI, and the second is investment intelligence. You know, there's lots of fintech, which we think is largely tech, just given both my background and the teams, we think combining the fin with the tech, the investment intelligence with the AI component has allowed us to, to build several products under Tiffin, all helping the end investor uh, get more tailored answers. So think of it as a bit like what Netflix has done with movies or Stitch Fix is doing. This is a bit of a Netflix slash Stitch Fix of wealth management where you can get very personalized answers to various sorts of questions you may have ranging from planning needs or risk assessments or investment needs or, or even insights. 
So we have a platform of 10 subsidiaries that we fully own, and each one has its own brand, a uh, storefront, if you will, that's creating products that work both um, independently as well as together. That's what Tiffin is doing. So how did you fall into that? I'm always curious because, you know, you're, you're a smart guy. You're very, you know, you have this entrepreneurial side about you and, you know, same here. And it's, it's constantly like I have, you know, these ideas that pop into my head, whether they're good ideas or whether they're dumb ideas sometimes, but you know, what led you to creating Tiffin and going down this path? Cause I'm sure you had a bunch of different options, a lot of things floating around, a lot of other opportunities um, encircling you. Why Tiffin and, and why are you so passionate about this? So I came to this, uh, as you know, I was teaching full-time at Wharton and uh, continued to uh, on the executive program as a visitor. But um, I started a quant hedge fund, which was a very institutional space. So they're the clients where think sovereign funds or public pension funds. And while doing that, I started getting exposed to the non-institutional space and just realized that there is such a huge difference between institutional uh, service and delivery in the world of investments and non-institutional. And we saw pretty significant opportunities to, to change the end investor experience and investor outcomes. And in the US alone, you know, there are 47 million advised investors, and there are about 50 billion uh, self-directed, some overlap. But mm. it's a large group of people who we think are just not getting uh, serviced properly and getting correct, best outcomes and, and great experiences. So that combined with the fact that I think investing can be and should be a pretty meaningful pillar of your financial wellness, just like how banking, lending, insurance, et cetera, is. Our view is that, you know, my view personally is to achieve financial freedom, you have to invest, whether you invest your human capital and, and get ownership in a firm or whether you invest actual capital and get returns on it. That is a critical component of the financial freedom, you know, that everyone defines differently, but everyone strives for. Uh, you can't get there by just renting out your human capital, working in a firm, getting getting income. Most people end up spending most of it or saving small portions of it over a long time and still feeling nervous and anxious about it. So when you combine those two things, it, to me, impact that we could have on a large number of people through an area which surprisingly hasn't really adapted to this you know, modern, I would say, digital technological world was a huge driver in, in doing all of this. Sure. And, that, and there's absolutely like huge upside and huge impact there that you could have on millions of people's lives. And, and what I find interesting, Vinay, is, is this, is I, I think the whole way that the financial system is ran is broken in, a, in so many different ways. And it's funny because, you know, if you go to, you know, an affluent part of the country, you'll see all these yachts and these nice cars and all that. And they belong to usually people in finance, financial managers, financial um, related positions. But where are all the customers, their customers, where are their yachts and where are their cars? And it's interesting too, just the average American, like you're talking about, you know, puts money into these funds, right? Whether it's mutual funds or index funds or, or whatever, their IRA, 401k, all these different financial instruments. But there's also like this massive gap when it comes to 
having enough to retire because we're living longer and there's inflation and there's more taxes and all these other things. So like, what's your thought on that? Like how broken do you think the system is and, and where do you think the opportunities are moving forward? I think the system is definitely changing and needs to change. Part of the reason it needs to change is because it's been designed backwards in some ways, because it all started with product, not, not the person, you know, whether it was a fund or a particular investment. And then the product was pushed, often through intermediaries, to the end investor, uh, without really you know, understanding whether it was needed or not for the end investor. And the knowledge gap between the manufacturers and the users, uh, just like in the world of health in some ways, you know, significant as well. So when you have this system where people design products and push it through and get commissions and the end users don't really understand the area well, it's just designed for, you know, not great outcomes, socially anyway. Mm-hmm. And I think today there are hundreds and thousands of financial products. The, the intermediary world, you know, there are 300,000 financial advisors in the U.S., $20 trillion that they oversee. And that world is... is both digital, there are you know, robo-advisors, other sort of solutions, brokerages that sit between financial media platforms even, that sit between the end investor and the manufacturers. And overall, I think this industry needs to become a lot more end investor focused and start designing solutions with, with the end investor in mind. To me, it's a bit like, you know, you need a bit of a Uber type of mentality to identify which problems to solve and how to solve it. And that only happens when you are completely client focused. Uh, And in this particular case, the end investor focus, you know, rather than let's say Walmart can start a website that doesn't make them, you know, a digital innovation client focused company. Uh, And even when Uber existed, there were taxi cab companies that had, you know, text messages that they would send to you or some sort of uh, internal uh, tech platform for dispatching things that didn't make them uh, innovative companies. There's a real opportunity here for the industry to start with the end investor, think about what questions need to be answered for them, and then build a business to answer those. I believe those are the types of businesses that will succeed in the future. Yeah, and, and I absolutely agree. And, and, and that's really your whole approach that you talk about going from ideation to development to determining market fit and then scaling. You know, how has this process like helped you to be successful and, and how do you see it playing out in other organizations that you interact with and, and work with? The the process of innovation, and I'm fascinated by it. And I have started either by myself or with my co-founders over 10 companies now under the structure and increasingly the last one the last product we just started under tiffin and the separate subsidiary we were able to launch an mvp in six weeks and a production quality product in six more weeks which is the fastest we have done so three months basically from you know from ideation to product the first time i did this you know took about two and a half years but lots of you know what was released also had to be changed a lot and there is so much efficiency and learning from, from repeating the process, you know, again and again, especially within a thematic area, you know, so all, everything that we are doing is in the fintech world. It's been, it's been very successful for us as far as speed goes, as far as innovation at speed goes. One reason it has been successful is the ideation often comes from the industry. You know, I think that going back to questions, I think the 
the problems are often well understood. And if you can go talk to people and get a good sense of what are the true frictions, what are the problems, and then go back and try to solve them, it's a, it's a much higher likelihood of building something that has market fit you know, uh, soon, as opposed to starting with a technology uh, mindset and creating something that then has to be tweaked and force-fitted into some business problem with the you know, infamous pivot, if you will. And that's interesting. And, and I'm sure you've worked with a lot of entrepreneurs um, throughout your career. How, how do you like put that into practice? You know, like what if somebody's listening and they're like, Vinay, I get that, right? I, I know I need to ask better questions. I know I need to get out there more. Like, how do they do that? Um, is it just a matter of going and meeting with people? And like, maybe at first you're not very good at asking questions, but the questions get better over time as you practice or do you, you know, do you recommend any books or is it like, like, how do you develop that like skill set and that mindset to go out there and be so curious and to be, put the customer first and to ask these great questions? Our, our experience has been that most people, I think, come from the, from the right space and place. So if you show them something, I think you get a lot out of it. So we often initially will simply do a quick mock you know, let's say this is an area, let's call it ESG or sustainable investing in environmental, social investing, sustainable investing. And that's an area of interest. We think it's a long-term trend. Then you, you build some sort of a mock, some sort of a prototype. And most of us, I think, have been in the industry long enough that you know, we have relationships across incumbents, larger firms. You ask them for a favor. Will you take a look at this and tell me what you think? And then in that discussion, you often get a lot of valuable uh, inputs. Because remember, for many of them, this is also a breath of fresh air. Their day-to-day jobs just does not allow them to, to sit back and think about you know, ideation and innovation in a way that, um, that you can do in early stage firms or startups or, or platforms like ours. So for them too, it's a bit of a fresh air experience that I think um, most people enjoy. So instead of viewing it as, you know, as I'm bothering someone or I'm showing something that is not ready or I don't have answers, I think the mindset really is it's a win-win. We're all learning together. And the starting point is, you know, learning with aligned interests is what I think of this as. No, I think that's interesting. So like, how have you changed your approach or just your, your habits over time to become more successful in your career? Like at the beginning of your career, do, do you ever look back and you're like, oh, I cannot believe I used to do that. Vinay, what the heck was I thinking? Um, or have you just always been this sophisticated, very smart, intelligent guy? Steve, <laughs> <laughs> I walked you through all the things that, that uh, I shouldn't have done. It's a long list. <laughs> right? But uh, if I put it all into... I, I, I'll share with you one, one big area. You know, when I first started off as an entrepreneur, I would say that I was probably too uh, reliant on quantitative and uh, let's just call it scientific skills. And this is some, a future skill too, which I think will be more and more important, which is uh, empathy or social uh, skills. And I was an awful manager when I started my first firm. And you know, I think we can debate it today but I think definitely is, has been an area of growth and progress and thinking through how do you really build a team, inspire them, you know, take care of them, think about their own personal growth, 
while we build firms that are also growing and trying to help the end client. And overall, in a world where we should be more and more tech and most of the things that can be quantified will be quantified, most of the answers you'll get from algos will be better than answers you can provide immediately. The skills around just people and caring for them and helping them, I think will be much more important. And that's been, a, that's been an area of, I would say, you know, an area of attention, focus and growth for me personally. No, and I, and I absolutely agree. I mean, I cringe when I think back on like how I was as a leader and a manager of people back in the day. I mean, I, I definitely was lacking in the empathy area and I would often put, you know, business goals and business success over, you know, people, unfortunately. I mean, it, I mean, it's sad to admit, but I, I absolutely agree is, you know, that's the two things that I've been focusing on more. It's just like, how do I be more empathetic and how do I be more compassionate towards people? And, you know, as I travel the world more and, and see how, how different people do different things, right. And there's multiple ways to accomplish the same exact thing. It, it really has opened my eyes and it's helped me become more empathetic because I'm like, number one, life is really hard. People are going through difficult things. Number two, starting with empathy is going to create this connection and allow them to open up to you and, and collaborate and, and all these other benefits that come from it. But it's, it, it goes back to your main theme here is like, how do you, how do you run a successful business into the future if you don't start with empathy with your customer? I just, I don't get how you have a sustainable business long-term. I completely agree. I think, you know, one thing which I think people often fall into the trap of uh, that, that is, is just horizon and duration. They just don't think uh, long enough. Mm-hmm. And, you know, if your horizon is very short, Let's say you come take a job and you think in your head you're going to be here for two years. You'll operate differently. And I think the reality is, I think it's a long game. Even if you think you're going to be here two years, your next job will depend on how you've done here and what people here have to say, so on and so forth. So I think changing the mindset into uh, impact mindset and a longer term mindset solves a lot of problems automatically. I agree. I absolutely agree. And I I think that's so important. And it's so important for, you know, business leaders, financial leaders to be focused on, you know, growth and innovation and resilience, you know, like building organizations that can last. And I think when you get into the short-term thinking, like we were talking about earlier, you just cutting costs, but you're not changing your, your operating model. You're just, you're adopting technology because that's what your peers are doing. Or you saw it, you know, you saw some demo of it at a, a trade show, but it doesn't really, you know, help help you really accomplish what you're trying to do or streamline activities or, or other things like that, you know, you could definitely fall into some traps. So um, a lot of great things. So let, let, let's bring it all together here. Cause you know, obviously you're, you're well qualified in this area. You're a thought leader. Uh, you're definitely an innovator. What trends are you seeing in FinTech personally? Um, you, you've kind of shared some throughout the episode, but if you had to like bring it all together and tie that to like these trends and then Part two of that is, is give advice to the listeners like, hey, here's some trends and this is what you need to be focusing on. This is where you need to get your house in order. This is where you just need to like double down on your personal growth or whatever to take advantage of these um, opportunities. What would you say? Like, how do you, how do you tie that all together? So FinTech in particular, you know, yes, all the standard uh, tech components, whether it's AI or cloud or APIs and all of those things are changing, changing the industry through many, there are thousands of, of fintechs that are starting up. Incumbents are also, you know, uh, 
uh, innovating internally, buying, building. So the industry is changing pretty fast. To me, I think the, the end result, and FinTech, by the way, has banking and lending and insurance and investing. So various components to this and financial services is about 25% of the GDP. So, so all those areas are getting affected by it. But I think a big trend is essentially, uh, I believe, in, increasingly, uh, is every business will have some notion of fintech inside it. You know, there is the, the, the term embedded finance is being used a lot these days. So anyone who's touching money, just like back in the day, um, most retailers started credit cards, right? Our, our airline companies have credit cards, which is a financial service. Now, there's no reason why they won't have maybe a embedded insurance product or a lending product or a banking product or an investing product. And one thing, you know, at Tiffin, we are talking to some consumer platforms where they have engaged audiences and you could have APIs that deliver these things. So people don't have to go specifically to a bank to bank. Mm-hmm. They don't need to go to an insurance firm to buy insurance. They don't need to go to, you know, a, a, a wealth management firm to have their wealth managed. So increasingly, I think the way fintech is evolving, I think will allow folks to access a lot of the components of how you should manage your money and your wealth for retirement or for impact or for for the next generation in an easier, more bundled manner while you do other things. I think that's going to be a pretty significant trend. Yeah, that's interesting. So how do people... Like what, what's your advice to people then to like, how do you capitalize on these trends? Like, what do they need to do personally? What do they need to develop? What do they need to be thinking about in order to be prepared for this future wave of work that's coming and these opportunities that will be hitting in the future? What individuals can do, I think is just think a bit harder or at least to entertain the possibility of thinking about their needs and wants. You know, often the needs and wants are just not explicitly uh, articulated or even recognized. So what protection do you need? You know, what is your desire? What is What planning needs do you have? What is your personal desire to feel engaged and connected to your money? And once I think you understand that, you'll see there are plenty of solutions out there today that you can, uh, that you can start with. What the industry hasn't done very well is helping uh, discover needs and wants in, in ways that consumers can understand. Most of it has been done from a compliance viewpoint, you know, to satisfy some regulatory constraint, sure. um, such as a risk assessment tool, for example, which people don't really understand or connect with. So I think just stepping back and thinking about financial freedom, thinking about how do I enable that? What do I need? What do I want? From there on, I think you'll find solutions if you get to that point. That's great advice. A lot of great takeaways um, in this episode. So thank you so much for being on the podcast. And you know, just like I've started out the podcast with, and you know, the the profound thing where you're saying, "Hey, build the skills for the future." Right now, um, you know, there's a lot of golden nuggets within this episode. So thank you so much for your time. Congratulations on Tiffin, and just all the success that you've had so far. I, I think you know, your way of approaching business and in fintech is really refreshing and in there's huge value there. So um, I know you're out there impacting a lot of people's lives through business and through fintech specifically. So keep up the good work, Vinay. Thank you, Steve. And it was a pleasure to, to chat with you and keep doing the great work you're doing on this podcast. 
Hey, thanks for tuning into the show. If there's any way I can be helpful to you and your business, or if you have feedback or ideas regarding this podcast, shoot me an email at contact at cultivar.com. I would love to connect. All the best. Thank you.